Hello, and welcome to another episode of CKX Questions. On this episode, I sit down for a conversation with Maya Menezes. Maya is Senior Manager at The Leap, where she is co-host of the amazing Change Everything podcast, an organizer with No One is Illegal Toronto, and an organizer of PowerShift. And it is the way the latter summarized her work that resonated most for me. Maya is a climate, refugee, and migrant justice organizer, professional fundraiser, and full-time hellraiser. In our conversation, we spoke to the myths and mistruths inherent within the Canadian narrative, the intersection of migrant justice and climate change, the resurgence of coalition movements, as well as her vision for a decolonized and sustainable future. As I was preparing for my conversation with Maya, I was reflecting upon the theme of this season of CKX Questions, how we embody the just futures we strive for. In many ways, with the ascendancy of the current regime south of the colonial border, Canada has come to be seen as an exemplar of this type of embodiment that we're talking about. Amidst rising levels of resurgent racism, dehumanizing othering, and toxic misogyny, we're perceived to be a beacon of liberal democracy and the protector of progressive values. But for those active in community organizing and activism, this is far from the truth. With migrant detention, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and massive pipeline projects speaking to the stark disconnects between this perception and the reality. And so this is where our conversation started, was a conversation around that disconnect and around some of those dangerous myths we hold as Canadians when it comes to our national narrative. I'd love to start our conversation with a look at where we are now. Uh, prior to this conversation, we've spoken a little bit about the gap uh, between how we see ourselves as a country and how we actually are as a country. And so from your experience, what are some of the most dangerous myths around the national narrative that we hold? And what do Canadians need to understand about this disconnect as it relates to some of these challenges that we're trying to take on? Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, I think that one of the scariest things about uh, the national identity narrative um, is that I generally I think a lot of um, people in these lands uh, compare ourselves to the U.S. And we always say, well, we're not as bad as the U.S., which is a really sad and very dangerously low bar to set. Um, and I think that, you know, like this mainstream liberalism, um, which like can be thought of as everything from like the, the myth of multiculturalism um, to the fact that this is like a safe and welcoming place for everybody um, are really, really, really dangerous. Um, and that mainstream liberalism has like praised things like uh, the TRC, for example. Um, but we, we don't talk a lot about action. Like, what does it mean that Indigenous communities still have boil water advisories that are announced almost bi-weekly? There's still a missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. Um, and when there's a militarized invasion of Indigenous lands like New Stoughton, we say, oh, this is an isolated incident. And, and we, don't, we don't say Standing Rock of the North, which mm. is really what it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so that myth is really scary. But I think it's actually largely attributed... Um, around this like myth that we don't have a horrifying history like we have a shocking lack of lack of memory in canada um i still meet a lot of people who like don't know that residential schools were a thing i still meet a lot of people that don't know 
um, that we had internment camps here. Um, and so, like, the laws that allowed, for example, like, um, immigration and migration to become this huge part of our national identity don't actually exist anymore. Um, and so from, like, the migrant justice perspective uh, and the ways that this national identity is harmful is that the policies that allowed, for example, my grandparents to arrive here um, as immigrants and migrants from India and Pakistan are disappeared many, many years ago. But many people don't know that. And so it sets many, you know, boomers, that generation, to believe that the systems that we're in are fair and just. And that's really just not true. Um, and so we have like some of the most precarious and unjust systems in the world, um, especially around immigration and migration. And so most people are actually denied status. Many hundreds are stuck in limbo, jumping through these unending hoops while the goalposts just change every single cycle. So like, I wanted to offer a little bit of history about how uh, this national identity is built and why it's so difficult to unpack around mm. migrant justice. Um, so, for example, I've been thinking a lot about like the history that allows racism, especially around migrants, to become so rampant. Um, and we don't think about like Canada's involvement um, in all the vast um, crises that we face around the world. So Canada has like supported wars, political destabilizations, economic sanctions, uh, structural adjustments that have like really robbed the global south um, of economic opportunity and really just profited from generations of colonialism if we were going to sum it up. So, you know, like, what does it mean that goods and services can cross borders under runaway capitalism, but people can't? So, like, a really good example of this, I find, is Honduras. Um, because in 2009, Canada supported a political coup in Honduras, which a lot of people don't actually know about. And this political coup was largely to allow, like, really infamous Canadian mining companies access to vast natural resources. So, like, most of the world's mining companies are actually headquartered in Toronto, another history people don't know. Um, and so these companies, like, trashed indigenous territories, they poisoned land, water, they, like, hugely disrupted traditional farming communities, displaced millions upon millions of people, exacerbated climate change in doing all of this, like, increased gang violence, the horror goes on and on and on. And the largest group of people, and so, like, fast forward to 2000 and... 18, the largest group of people in the migrant caravan that family, famously you know, walked across South America hoping for asylum in the U.S. were Hondurans, displaced largely because of these policies. So then mm. like, we think back to this broader history that Canada is now enforcing the Safe Third Country Agreement and its expansion to I-5 countries. So for people who don't know, the Safe Third Country Agreement is a piece of uh, legislation that basically says that the U.S. is a safe country. And so if you apply for asylum in the United States and you're denied, which almost everyone in the migrant caravan was or is and is now being detained, you can't actually apply for asylum in Canada. Um, you're just deported. So what does this mean? We, disrupt, we do participate in political destabilization, Canadian mining profiteering, and then we put up walls for people that are fleeing the horror that we built. That history is completely lost. And then we just skip forward to the racism of, well, you should just stay in your own countries. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we knew this history, would we have the same national narrative? I don't think so. But of course, it's not in wealthy elites or racist interests to preserve and connect the dots of history. So this is just kind of another example about how this national narrative really undermines social justice movements, which, of course, 
win battles, and so governments are afraid of them. And it really threads a clear line of how attacks on indigenous communities, whether at home or abroad, the attack on migrants and rising racism and how this all comes together with climate catastrophe are actually really, really intimately in, interconnected. And maybe we can dive a little bit more into that last thread, just those intersection points and, and mm-hmm. how, those, how those crises actually compound and exacerbate upon each other. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I think that Honduran example is a good springboard for it mm-hmm. because um, the way that these exacerbate each other, like, so we, we think about the way that people are displaced and, and uh, migration as a part, as a symptom of climate crisis. Um, and then we think about, you know, the ways in which that crisis gets even more exacerbated. So we have people who are on the move for a vast number of reasons, whether that's because of war or uh, resource depletion um, or a host of other issues. And we are actually creating programs in Canada right now to make it even more difficult for us to um, humanize people that are on the move and then even more difficult for us to offer them pathways to safety. Um, And so, for example, in Canada, we have programs like the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and the Caregivers Program. So the Temporary Foreign Worker Program is a massive work permit program where uh, migrant workers from all over the world um, come and do a lot of, largely it's for farm work and factory work in Canada. So work that a lot of people don't do here, um, very precarious work, very dangerous work. Um, And a lot of people who are part of the migrant worker programs are displaced people from areas where Canada has had horrible impacts. Um, No, every single temporary foreign worker within this program are exempt from every single labor law in this country. And yet these communities are responsible for the majority of our food production and harvesting. So people come here every year, they live and work here, but they're barred from pathways to status and human rights. They're barred from healthcare. They're not allowed to bring their families. Um, And then we send people back home. And when they're on the move because of climate change, we say, well, we have a fair and just system. So just wait in line. So our laws are actually encouraging not only the disposability of objects, which exacerbates the climate crisis, but the disposability of people. Mm -hmm. So this is like peak late stage capitalism and really terrifying dehumanization that our government says is totally okay. And so it starts to like filter into the public consciousness that this is actually totally fair and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, And so it's kind of, you know, I've been making jokes and I think I made this joke with you during our pre-interview about how this really feels kind of like The Handmaid's Tale, so yes. where they do those flashbacks about what everything that was happening right before everything fell apart. And this really feels like it. Like we're watching, we're in the midst of the largest refugee and migration crisis the world has ever, ever seen. A huge group of people who are on the move are indigenous communities. We have rising racism because of it. But we're actually putting laws in place that allow capitalism to get continue to run even more amok while saying that people are actually not deserving of any of our time or any type of uh, compassion and justice. So like migrant justice is is indigenous rights, is climate justice. An attack on one of them is an attack on all of them. So when we we say in the climate justice movement, like this time for everyone, that's what that means, is that all, all these things are connected. And if we don't address them all at once, they will just continue to exacerbate each other. And I think just as you were speaking, just thinking through as well, just how much of the 
I guess the airtime and bandwidth around these issues has been taken up by by the American discourse and I think just how much of the Canadian experience is lost in that and I think as Canadians how much we do pride ourselves on being different in that sense I think it's what you raise is I think a really um, important wake-up call for Canadians around the fact that many of these same patterns and uh, trends are playing out here as well. Oh, totally. I, I still can't believe how difficult it is to explain to Canadians like what's happening at home. Like mm-hmm. we just don't draw those connections. Like we have a lot of people, for example, like Trudeau tweeting that migrants and refugees are welcome here. And at the same time, every under the current government, every single migrant detention facility in Canada is currently under construction for mass expansions, every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like we're opening up more spaces to detain migrants. And I don't know if you saw this on the news, but on uh, July 8th, uh, the Canadian Border Services Agency, which is also known as Canada's ICE, was in Weston and Lawrence in Toronto. They're usually in those communities across the country, but on July 8th, they were in Weston and Lawrence. Um, and they were in plain clothes and forcibly IDing people and asking them for their papers, a process which, to be clear, is illegal. Um, they were demanding their papers of people, and if people couldn't turn over their papers, they were being loaded into unmarked white vans and driven away. Wow. This is super, super illegal. This happened in broad daylight. A bunch of reports came in from people who had been stopped, who were frightened. They called the news. The news confirmed with CBSA that they were in the area. And you know, like, th- these are things that are that are happening. But the discourse is so dominated, and it feel it feels like it's so hard to believe for people. You know, like I I don't think that in 2016 a lot of people who were in the U.S. or abroad could have imagined in the worst case scenario that we have live concentration camps popping up in the United States. But that is not a far cry from what could happen here, especially in the wake of what could possibly happen this election in October. So like. These, these things, it's really important for people to take a moment and take stock of the history of detentions, of dehumanization, of like oppression for racialized communities, um, and really start to like thread what is possible when we start to let things slip. Mm. Yeah, and I just wonder on that thread, like we, you've spoken a little bit to some of the myths and, and mistruths as well in terms of the Canadian narrative, and just picking up that thread around the upcoming election, just wondering if there are maybe some particular issue areas or, um, yeah, topics that you feel aren't getting um, maybe the attention they deserve. I think this one is is definitely top of mind for me. Um, But if there's others that you feel as we're heading into the election season that Canadians really need to be paying more attention to. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that... I I remember last year um, there was... Uh, I was getting ads from the Conservative Party um, where they were testing two realms of thought. They were testing the carbon tax and whether pipelines, people wanted more pipelines. And then the other um, issue they were testing was just like blatant racism. Um, And so like they're trying to figure out which ways they can divide us. Um, And so this is a really big theme, this federal election, and also a, a a big theme that we can really look to in the U.S., Um, So I don't know if you saw, I I will start with the U.S., but I'll come back to why in a second. Um, Trump has been attacking uh, the Justice Democrats, which are a bunch of like Democratic socialists, women of color, Mm -hmm. um, Muslim women also, who are fighting against like the migrant detention centers in the U.S. 
Um, so that's like Representative um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. And they're now effectively, affectionately being called the squad. Uh, but they held this really incredible press conference where they were addressing kind of like the hate that's popping up in this election in the U.S., this looming election. Um, and they say, and, and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made this quote that just like really resonated with me about what's happening uh, and I'm relating it to Canada, but she said um, in the press conference that weak minds and leaders challenge loyalty to our country in order to avoid challenging and debating the policy. And this president doesn't know how to make the argument that Americans don't deserve health care. He doesn't know how to defend his policies, and that's what this is all about. He can't look Americans in the face and children in the face and tell them they deserve to live in cages. And really... That quote resonated with me because I see that playing out in this election wholeheartedly. We have like Andrew Scheer, who's getting on stage, the leader of the Conservative Party, getting on stage with white nationalists on Parliament Hill and patting each other on the back and talking about loyalty to the country and loyalty to people and this like rampant, frightening white nationalism that's spreading everywhere. But no one's talking about the policies that will affect people. Mm. Trudeau is doing the same thing. He was asked at a press conference about um, the comments that Trump made about these women, um, but also about migrant children. He had some weird quote about everyone around the world knows exactly what I think about that. And here in Canada, you know, we a Canadian is a Canadian. That's just random words that has nothing to do with the policies that are, gonna, that are going to affect people. And so, like, this weak minds and weak leaders challenge loyalty instead of addressing the issues is a very real and dangerous thing, this election. And so there's like there's a lot of people organizing around it, but there's a group um, namely called Our Time, who are like youth organizers across the country. They want to call for a federal leaders debate on climate action and climate justice. And like they're trying to force our leaders to debate the issues. And I really think that is going to be a really important way that we uh, vehicle for intervention in this election is like we need to force people to talk about the issues. Um, or we need to figure out something else. Yeah. It's those divisive identity politics. Again, I think we look to the states and somehow think that we're, we're exempt when in actuality it's, it is playing out in real time here. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and really, I think, playing into some of those dangerous pieces of the narrative that you've outlined. I couldn't help but think as you were chatting that the ongoing denial of Canada's true efforts and and actions abroad is very much the same as the denial of the actions that continue to take place here on unceded territories as well within what is now Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just a, a long-standing history in Canada of of denialism when it comes to the full and true extent of of the story of of what makes Canada Canada. Mhm. Absolutely. To build upon that, to build upon where we are now, and the truth of where we are now, and setting our sights on the future, and setting our sights upon a potential path forward to a more just and equitable future. I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the Green New Deal. What resonated most for you within that framework uh, when you first, uh, obviously it has its roots in the States with the Sunrise Movement, but when you first came across that framework, what what drew you to it as a tool to uh, both to mobilize more broadly and then to mobilize specifically here in Canada? I think the thing that drew me to it was 
um, the way it can actually, it could be, and I'm not, and I want to clarify that I'm not saying that it is being right now, Mm -hmm. but it could be used as a framework for collectivizing solutions in a way where, you know, everyone is called to the table to negotiate. And like, this can have huge pitfalls, you know, like believe we were part of the um, coalition that, uh, the massive coalition that launched this call for a Green New Deal in Canada. But it was just that. It was a call to collectivize the process. It wasn't the solution that was being offered by the coalition. Mm-hmm. The call was, we want to know what people think. Come tell us what you think. Let's figure out what this could look like. Um, and that means that, you know, when you collectivize the process by which you build solutions, you offer people a lot of capacity to feel ownership over the process that has to go into it, um, which is really important because I think that, um, and this could be a pitfall, but we're all hoping it's not, is that it offers the opportunity of a lot of privileged and powerful people who do share our vision to give up power and redistribute power at a table. Um, and that redistribution of power ultimately is what the undercurrent of a Green New Deal is because we're calling for systems change. We're calling for the complete reallocation and redistribution of wealth and power and resources in a way that uplifts those most marginalized in our communities and really valorizes those low carbon work and workers that um, have been denied really a lot of dignity and rights for far too long and have led us into this climate catastrophe in the first place. So we need to, and we're going to need, you know, the Green New Deal offers a framework for when people are on a table we're bringing in people from all different sectors because in order to address the full extent of this climate crisis, we're actually going to need the collective brilliance and ideas of a thousand different sectors to pull this thing off. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so I'm like, I'm usually really, you know, in the F the government camp and I still am, but in a mass transition that needs to like address the timeline we have, which we know is 11 years, um, says the IPCC report. We actually need mass intervention because who will make sure that people have access to food, to medical care, to mass relocation as sea levels rise, to housing? We need a, a government to step in as we begin to imagine what comes next. But the GND, the Green New Deal, is about building the plan. Government intervention first, but we want community power ultimately. We want power completely in the hands of people. And for a long time, I think that like outside of Green New Deal frameworks, we didn't really believe that we could win systems change. So we're really focused on gaining small incremental access to power. And I don't think that a lot of folks were thinking about, like, if we got power, what comes next? Do we know how to govern? Do we know what the redistribution of wealth and power actually looks like? And so the Green New Deal is the framework through which we can imagine and build out a full plan. Um, and I, from, like, what happens right now to get us through the next few years and how do we redistribute power in the long term for all people starting at the bottom up? Um, and I, that's what really inspires me and drives, you know, brings me to uh, what resonates most for me about the Green New Deal framework. Well, and speaking of inspiration, uh, you recently returned from the Green New Deal for All national tour with a leap uh, and a coalition of national partners. And just wondering, uh, what was that experience of that national tour like uh, for you and and how are Canadians responding to the vision uh, of the Green New Deal when it comes to uh, mobilizing and responding uh, to the climate crisis? The, the Green New Deal, Deal tour was really just electrifying. I have never been 
in so many cities across the country where people were so called to action. You know, it's like we had standing room only at every single venue and people were all there with the same question, you know, like, what do we do? Tell us what to do, what comes next. Um, and so like people are very impassioned and like very excited about what to do. And they're looking for someone or something, um, a flashpoint, a rising tide mm. to jump on and ride the wave for. Um, and I'm really hoping that, you know, people are able to see themselves in what a Green New Deal could mean in Canada and involve themselves in the process. I think we have this thing in Canada where we will like wait and watch to see yeah. who will jump in and lead the thing. Yes. Um, which is like part of that national identity thing. We're like, well, someone will do it eventually and we'll all be fine. And I really hope that that doesn't happen this time um, because, you know, the reason this Green New Deal has been so successful in the States and the reason it's being imported now is because social movements work. That's mm -hmm. why governments and corporations are so afraid of them. Um, and if we don't, if we leave anyone behind, if we leave the framework of this time for everyone behind, they will just pick us off one by one. So I'm really hoping and I'm really inspired by the amount of people that want to involve themselves. And I'm very hopeful but cautiously optimistic that people will um, take ownership over what this call to action is and make it their own in their communities. And maybe on that thread, what, in terms of those, I guess, the invitation, because I, I think that's the piece that really drew me to this national tour is it really was an invitation for folks to come out and and to your point, I think counter some of that bystander syndrome that we often see in, in Canadian, the Canadian discourse more broadly. How mm -hmm. do we create more of those, those invitations and opportunities for folks? And how do we get, yeah, get people mobilized and excited around, around some of this work, whether it be the Green New Deal or whether it be around, you know, really campaigning and mobilizing around this upcoming election? I think we really have to think about the barriers to access that people face mm. and work on making sure that people have avenues to demanding change that works for them. Like, I would love to see unions come back to the table with, here's the Green New Deal for how we're going to revolutionize our sector. I would love to see, like, folks actually going out into migrant communities, for example, and offering them the opportunity to participate in ways that are safe for them. Um, like there are a lot of barriers to access for people for being able to participate in this type of work. Um, and, you know, the work of undoing those barriers means that like you change your meeting schedule, you go to meet people where they are, you really listen to what's affecting them in their communities. And that becomes up, is uptaken into the document as a whole. Like we, when we think about like what affects um, frontline communities, that is climate justice. That is part of a transition. Um, so I'm really hoping that that becomes a, a more, you know, foundational building block of how people get brought into the work is that we don't like bring people in and say, sign here. We go out to them and go, what do you need to feel good about this and how can we make that happen for you? Um, and like youth are leading that charge, which is really, really incredible. Are there any specific uh, organizations or initiatives that you'd like to highlight that are that are doing some of that work in terms of shifting how how we mobilize and, and how we build movements? 
Well, something that's been fascinating me lately is I don't know who else is noticing the climate justice enter your city names that are popping up all over the country. Mm. They're inspiring the heck out of me. They are yes. completely youth-led. Um, a lot of them have, a lot of these organizers have strong ties to like workers' rights organizing, indigenous frontline work, migrant justice, climate action, and like everything in between. And they're the ones coordinating community organizing responses to some of the worst impacts of like rising racism in the country and xenophobia and climate denial. And like those frameworks, like the, the rebuilding of coalitions is something I harp on a lot at Belief um, and in the podcast that I do with Ellie Lewis is coalitions. We've really forgotten how to build coalitions. And I want to like shout out all the climate justice cities that are actually rebuilding what that process looks like and coming to a table and having difficult conversations. Like at the Green New Deal launch in Toronto, um, Pam Palmetter made this incredible quote that has just really kind of blown me away and is, and is really what I want to shout out is people who are going out and doing coalition work. She said, um, I don't have to like everyone I'm in treaty with. <laughs> nice. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. And, and that's like a really big thing to remember. I don't have to agree 100% with all the people fighting for our shared liberation, but my gosh, do I have to work with them? And these young people are doing that in a really incredible way. And not only bringing in people in a tokenizing way, but for example, there was like a climate convergence in Toronto a little while ago. Um, Edmonton has a really incredible climate justice um, group where they regularly show up for a thousand different communities in meaningful ways. Sometimes that is coming up and cooking food for everyone. Sometimes it's doing art build. Sometimes it's just showing up and being bodies in the street when people need a strength in numbers to be safe. And, it, and then it's also amplifying the calls for action from every community you're working with. And when that happens, you actually build meaningful solidarity with each other. So I want to give like a big shout out to the, the climate justice cities, but also, um, there's an organization that started called the Migrant Rights Network, which I also want to highlight for people that are following things. The Migrant Rights Network is actually a, a, um, a decentralized network of migrant justice organizations that are calling for uh, uh, us to come together against racism in this election, but also to work on having difficult conversations in community with each other. Um, the organization I'm a part of, known as Legal Toronto, we are part of the Migrant Rights Network. Um, they're doing really, really incredible and very important work. Um, and so like, there's, there's a lot of organizations doing this type of work, but at the core, I think, of all of this is a return to the work that is relationship building and coalition building. Um, and those are the things I would really encourage people to like go do the work with the organizations you work with, but also look around and go, who else is really doing work that ultimately is deeply connected with us and how do we go out and build relationships with those folks what maybe led to in your perspective some of the the breakdown or lack of presence of some of that coalition building for a time and mm -hmm. may, maybe what lessons have been gleaned or learned from that lull that has really helped spark and amplify some of these current efforts well, I think one of the um, byproducts of capitalism is the concept of scarcity culture. Mm. Like, we think that we've been taught to believe that everything is scarce. Resources are scarce, um, but also emotional capacity is scarce. Um, you know, like 
capacity for love is scarce. Um, compassion is scarce. And that's not true. That's yes. not real. That's a myth. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Like scarcity culture is a myth. Um, and I think that when we are faced with the impacts of austerity, so when I'm talking about austerity for people that don't know about it is like, is, you know, it cuts to social services, cuts to essential services for many, many marginalized communities. Um, we're told that there's not enough housing. There's not enough for people to be paid a minimum wage. There's not enough for us to go and build uh, drink it, clean drinking water systems for indigenous communities. There's not enough room so migrants can't come in. There's not enough time for racial justice because I can't even feed my family. Like none of that is real. All of the, the suffering is real, but the lies that we've been fed as to why the world is the way it is, those are not real. We do have enough space for people. There are enough resources for everyone. We do have enough housing. There is enough access to, there should be enough access to healthcare. We absolutely have the capacity to give people clean drinking water. But scarcity culture is a byproduct of capitalism and it's filtered into our social movements in other really scary ways. Um, of course, if, you know, I can speak for migrant justice work in Ontario when Doug Ford was elected and the, the cuts to our essential services started coming down the pipe at a speed we had not thought possible. We didn't realize that he would be able to gut all of legal aid, which basically stopped every refugee application in process in its tracks. Like hundreds of people lost their jobs. Um, we had massive cuts to education. Like it all happened in sometimes in a span of days, mm -hmm. sometimes in a span of weeks, all of it way too fast. And suddenly people go into scarcity mode. I don't have time to do anything other than this because if I don't do this, people will die, which is true. And if we're not coming out for everybody together, they want us to be fractured. They want us to feel like it's all overwhelming, like there's nothing we can do, like these issues aren't connected. That suits their needs. So this, this scarcity culture, I think, really started to fracture the coalition work. Um, and I remember walking through the city one day and noticing that there was like seven rallies in the city in one day. Like clearly no one had spoken to each other. Mm. There was going to be like, an overdose prevention rally, super important. Racial justice rally, super important. Migrant justice rally, super important. Climate justice march, really important. Labor organizers, really important. Like picket lines, like seven or eight. There's no way everyone's going to have time to go to those. Um, and so you start picking and choosing. But what if they all were in the same place? Yes, <laughs> what if the yes. calls to action were all the same? Like, yeah, What if everyone still got to speak, but the call to action is the same? Reverse the cuts. And so, like, this, this scarcity culture, I think, is now being unlearned as people realize that if we leave people behind, if we start to let um, elites, wealthy elites, corporations, governments divide us, then they absolutely will win. For me, a big wake-up call about this is, like, really, I was reading an article the other day about, um, and, and really going back to what I was saying earlier, that social movements work. That's why governments are afraid of them. That's why corporations are afraid of them. That's why they cut, offer cuts to us one by one, all back to back, so we feel like we can't come and support each other. Um, the article I was reading the other day was um, that almost every, I think like a third of the core organizers of Ferguson have all been found burned to death in their cars in the last year, two years. Mm. That's not an accident. There's not a, like there's, that's not a weird coincidence. The leaders of some of the biggest, most successful social movements in our history, in our collective history, in our 
modern history are being picked off one by one because what they were doing was winning. And so like the stakes are quite high, but that's why they come after us. And so we need to actually come together in really meaningful ways and protect each other because we have strength in numbers. And so this unlearning of scarcity culture, I think, is actually happening at an escalated pace, which is really incredible to see. I don't think six years ago, seven years ago, you could have walked into a climate justice um, convergence or conference or gathering and seen representatives from every social movement you could possibly imagine. It's all like people are understanding that like we actually need to come together if we're going to have solutions that fit the scale of the crisis we face. Um, and so it's a it's a call to action to folks like move beyond scarcity culture not only in how we view social movements but like in our thoughtfulness in our understanding and our compassion with each other because the learning that we need to go through together actually needs to be collectivized and we need to be a little bit more generous with each other so that we can move through this as fast as we need to yeah and i think the other piece of of this rise of of the coalitions that you're speaking about that i think is so important is the ability to take care of each other and to lift each other up as well. And I feel mm-hmm. that's a, another piece just, just to your, your reflections around being, being picked off one by one is that, that need to be there uh, to support each other. And, and I'm just wondering what, what that looks like for you in terms of how do we support each other and lift each other up in these, in these dark days? And it feels very serendipitous because I was just having dinner with a good friend last night and they were um, telling me about a couple of really incredible books that just were released. But the core of each, the pieces of each of these books was the, um, the opposite of cancel culture is nurturance culture. Mm. Um, and I think that that's very profound. Like we are past a time where we can just ostracize people because we don't share a same belief in what liberation looks like. Um, And we actually need to be more gentle with each other. And nurturance culture for me looks like instead of berating my, my comrade in a meeting about why they used the wrong language or why I think our tactics for the action tomorrow should be different. Instead, we should be culturing, like uh, creating a culture of learning of safety and of compassion we're actually coming to the table as friends and people in community with each other. I don't have to like everyone I'm in treaty with, but that doesn't mean I can't, I'm not, I can't just not show up for people. Um, and nurturance culture looks like a lot of things. It looks like um, making sure that we're actually connecting on a human level more often, that I know what's going on in people's lives. If they have issues with their family, if they're struggling to pay rent or put food on their tables, if they need childcare, if they have addiction problems, Um, If they're undocumented and feel unsafe in certain areas, like nurturance culture is making sure that we're in community in a meaningful way with each other. We're not just showing up and having and like really participating in this capitalist structure, which is extractivism, because when we just extract things from people, we actually are treating them as disposable. Um, And that's why largely we make this joke in movement organizing. We don't have a recruitment problem. We have a retention problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Nurturing each other and and being patient with each other and creating a culture where learning is celebrated um, and where learning curves are celebrated and failure is seen as a learning stepping stone and not a reason for you to be um, expelled and ostracized is, I think, a really big step that a lot of organizers can start to take in their everyday lives. 
um, in really, really meaningful ways. And I, I feel that happening a lot in the groups that I'm organizing with, which is really wonderful, is a return to this culture of like having human relationships. Um, but I think it is one of the most powerful decolonial and anti-capitalist ways of like fighting scarcity culture um, and coming back to a, a framework where coalitions can be something that works. Amazing. And maybe to just continue that thread, what's giving you energy right now and keeping you motivated in the work? Honestly, I, like not to repeat it twice, but it is this return to coalitions. Mm. I'm so stoked about it. Um, in in February, uh, a bunch of us organized this event called Power Shift, which was a youth convergence of organizers from a bunch of different sectors all under the umbrella of climate action, but from, you know, migrant justice, uh, indigenous rights, racial justice, um, and like mainstream environmental work. Um, and there was a lot of like learning, there was a lot of failing, there was a lot of moving forward. Um, but there was a lot of conversations that energized me a lot because out of power shift was the launch of the Green New Deal led by youth um, in Canada. And it also fostered some of uh, the relationships that led to um, a lot of young people joining bigger coalitions that were just starting to form. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, really energizing. Like this morning, I had like four different phone calls with organizers from a bunch of different spaces. We're all sharing resources. We're all sharing contact lists for speakers at rallies uh, and, you know, access to, to resources you need to pull off an action because people are talking to each other again. Um, and that relationship building and that intentional relationship building is what's giving me all of the energy to keep going. It's really nice and really important. Um, and life-saving to like get rid of that extractivism in organizing spaces and that's really like bringing me all of the energy to keep doing work and as you continue with this work and and as you look to the future what is your vision for a decolonized and sustainable future i know we've we've picked up various threads of it throughout this conversation but if there's anything else that you want to to raise or, or paint a picture around in terms of of that future that you and and some of these coalitions are working towards Ah, oh, it's a really hard question. Um, I think some of my visions are creating a culture where we don't see people as disposable. Mm -hmm. And that means that we don't, that we have pathways to status and citizenship for people. Um, ultimately, I would like to say, we have no borders because borders are absolute garbage and mm -hmm. colonial. And so an ultimate act of decolonization would be that there would be no borders. Yes. Um, but I want, I want, I want to see a borderless world. I want people to like really imagine what the world could look like if we had, uh, without carceral politics, like, what is it, what would it really look like if we really imagined it? What would it look like if we had no borders and no prisons where the concept of like nurturance culture was transformative and restorative justice instead of carceral punishment. Like really, if we thought about it, which seems like such a complicated and weird thing, but I don't think it is at all. And in a world where people are not confined by borders and not confined by prisons, what kind of wonderful sustainable future would that look like? Some of the highest polluters of the world 
are the politics of like hatred and violence of borders of capitalism of prisons if instead we had like access to resources and land we would be able to bring back low carbon living and lifestyles and farming practices and land stewardship in ways that like we thought you know went the way of the dinosaurs and that's a really really incredible thing and so I really like I've seen a lot of pieces right lately um some uh written by close pals about like if we just pushed ourselves to imagine what the world could look like without these things I think the roadmap to getting there wouldn't be as complicated as we think it is um and so like when I think about what it means to like abolish ice um close the camps um give the land back like that really is what I think the first stepping stone of my vision for what a decolonized and sustainable future could look like. Thank you for sharing that. It really gives, I think, all of us something to to work towards. I think just that return to humanity. I think, which is is something that I've I've heard in in everything you've said today, is to just rid ourselves of of the shackles of these systems that are are clearly not working uh, for the majority of people, and to really find those points of connection. And, and nurturance, I think, is is the only way forward. And so thank you for, for sharing that. Um, my, my boss said something really um, beautiful the other day. Um, it was on Facebook, but she was saying, like, let's imagine all the options first. This can't mm. be the final option. This can't be where we are right now can't be the only option. So let's try all the other options. Yes. Yes. Let's let's do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll start now. Yes, starting today. Well, no, and I, I think I, I think that's a a beautiful prompt and, and provocation. I think particularly for in, in the the framing of, of this conversation, which is around how we embody the just futures we strive for. I think part of that is is trying out the options, seeing what is on the table, and and actually. Uh, using that and using that experience and using the the emotional uh, response and connection that comes from those experiences to guide us in next steps forward. And so I think, yes, to let's try some options and see see what works. Absolutely. what is what is on your bookshelf right now? any anything that is uh, really inspiring you and energizing you uh, in your work? Ooh, on my bookshelf, like things I'm reading right now. Yes. Um, oh, too, too many things. I'm one of those people <laughs> who starts like six books at once. I'm also guilty um, of that, yes. And like then barely gets through any of them. Um, but I've been trying to like split up my time between reading books that um, are going to make me really, really think about systems and books that are really, really going to make me think about a little bit more um, humanity and softness. Mm. Um, so I've been reading a book right now called uh, Coconut Dreams, which is about going uh, diaspora in Canada. Um, and it's told through the story of a group of people who actually come to Canada from the community that my family's in in Goa, um, which is really, really a beautiful, beautiful story that I'm just starting. Um, and another book that I'm reading uh, that I would really recommend to folks, I just started it, is a book called The Tiger Flu. Um, and The Tiger Flu is about like a, it's a, a 
POC futurism, um, where uh, all the like queer and racialized communities um, in the like post apocalypse all have these like incredible superpowers that they use for community. Like they can regrow organs for each other when they're poisoned by the climate and reshare them with each other. It's a whole bunch of like, it's very cool. It's very funky. It's super like out there. It brings up a lot of like really complicated concepts of like, like people that are groomed to like just support others and don't really have an identity outside of that. And like revolutionary politics and it's very cool. Stay tuned. It may be, I don't know if it'll be really bad, but I'm really enjoying it right now. <laughs> great. Great. And, and lastly, just any, any initiatives uh, either that you're a part of or that you are just really inspired by uh, that you want to amplify or, or give a shout out to? Yeah. Um, I, I want to shout out all the R-Time kids uh, who are mobilizing for a, a leaders debate on climate action. Um, and I really, which is like happening right now, there's actually a day of action today, um, and which is going to happen at outside CBC headquarters, um, across the country. Um, and I also want to like an, an, an issue that I'm involved in is there's a really beautiful coalition of people, um, in Toronto right now, but I know that there will be others in other cities, um, that are calling for the closing of the concentration camps of kids in the U.S., but also calling on the sacred country agreement to be um, immediately scrapped by the government. Um, and people that are involved in that coalition are uh, organizations like If Not Now, which is a really incredible organization of young, radical Jewish uh, youth who are um, like fighting the, the you know, expansion of, of of concentration camps, of incarceration and detentions of, of families. Um, the Syria Solidarity Collective, um, a lot of the different, no one is illegal chapters, um, and No More Silence, which is an indigenous action group also. And so there will be close the camp actions expected, I imagine, across the country. I know that there's hope that they will happen outside of the detention facilities that are being expanded right now in Canada. Mm. The Toronto Immigration Holding Center is being expanded. The Laval Detention Center in Quebec and the Surrey Detention Center in Vancouver are also being expanded. So I would encourage people to stay tuned um, to No One Is Illegal, to If Not Now, to No More Silence, to... Um, keep abreast of what will be happening in cities. And if something's happening near you, I encourage you to go. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And just a, yeah, a heartfelt thank you on behalf of, of the whole CKX team for, for taking the time to, to be with us and to share uh, all of your, all of your wisdom and passion. And I would say hope as well for, for what's possible and, and just really, really grateful to you both for, our time together today and, and for all of the work uh, that you and, and all of these beautiful coalitions are, are putting together. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about some of my favorite things to talk about. On behalf of the CKX team, I'd like to express my gratitude to Maya for joining us on CKX Questions. For links to some of the projects, initiatives, books, and resources referenced in our conversation, please see the show notes. CKX Questions is a podcast from CKX, Community Knowledge Exchange. The intro and outro music for CKX Questions is the song Good Vibes from Broken Parts' self-titled album. Be sure to check out the link in the show notes to support their amazing work. Until next time, take care, and let's take care of each other.